Welcome back to That'll Preach. This is Brian. I'm here with Paul, and we're going to be going to uh, one of the final chapters of G.K. Chesterton's classic, uh, Orthodoxy. Uh, It's a collection of essays that he's written, talking about Christianity, a little bit about his own conversion, and helping us be skeptical about skeptics, which I think he he does a really good job of that. But uh, we've been trekking through this book, so make sure you check out some of the prior episodes And uh, we're going to be in chapter eight, which is exciting because it is a really good chapter. The Romance of Orthodoxy. Romance. You're full of of romance, aren't you, Brian? I'm full of romance. You are the king of romance. But uh, when you were reading this, I noticed that you, uh, well, after you read it, you said that this was a great chapter. Mm. So this obviously spoke to you on a deep level. It did. Because you yourself, you're just a sucker for romance. (laughs) The Notebook and all these types of things. Do you? I've never seen The Notebook. I've never seen The Notebook either, but. Yeah. You said that way too quick. Like you were trying to. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> no, the funny thing is I had a friend who had a shirt that said, attention ladies, I enjoyed The Notebook. It's like, it was like print on a shirt. And I'm like, no. That's well gross. Played. Gross. Well played. You know, I lived with a guy named Nicholas Sparks. <laughs> you did tell me I that. Did. <laughs> was he the writer of these books? No, he's a philosopher. Yeah, sure. Philosopher. Yeah. Just like you're a philosopher. <laughs> Do you have a favorite rom-com? 500 Days of Summer, probably. That was a good one. Is that Zoe Deschanel? Yeah. That's the one where she's like evil? Or she's Some kind of, would say. I mean, yeah. I she's mean, morally reprehensible. She's, she, well, it's funny because the uh, we actually watched it in film school. We saw a screening of it and the director came and he talked about it. Mm. And he was saying how the whole story is kind of meant to flip the script a little bit because in reality the main guy he seems like he's the victim but really he's not so stainless himself he he made her out like he wasn't listening to what she was saying mm-hmm. she is being i mean i think by Terrible. christian standards being immoral and being you know very self-centered but he was self-centered in his own way as well and i think that's the whole flip of the movie that um that there's that in the in the rom com, that that to paint her as the only bad guy, is to miss the way the main character is distorted himself. I think that sounds sounds kind of feministy. I don't know. <laughs> don't you dare, Paul. I I, I, it's been a no, while I since I've seen that. I don't know. I, I, that sounds know, right. It. I mean, there's a little bit of feministiness in it, but it's also like it's it's funny and it's not like. It's tame compared, I think, what you would see today. Um, but it, it really is. I think it, it it's it's kind of like a millennial relationship movie. Like it's sounds terrible. The unique challenges of it and all that stuff. I haven't seen it in a while, but I remember when it first came out, I'm like, oh, this is funny. And it's also insightful in how relationships kind of work nowadays. <laughs> and you would know you're you're international man of mystery, uh, bachelor. Yeah. This this does not resonate with my life. Hmm. Probably for the best though. Gotcha. Chesterton would not approve. Chesterton would not approve. There mm. you have it. There you have it. Um, I bet people just tuned out. They're just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Why are they talking coms. about Zoe Deschanel? Yeah, yeah. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> like exactly. I'm impressed they know who Zoe Deschanel is. I know. Look, we're, we're yeah. relevant. We're, we're relevant. We're in touch. We're an irrelevant podcast. <laughs> so the romance of orthodoxy. Yes. Um, he goes through a lot of topics in this passage. I mean, it's very dense. I mean, most of these. Are pretty dense. Um, 
Why, but, do you, why do you think it's called the romance of orthodoxy? Mm, is he trying I'm to show that orthodoxy is? It's, it's a really great book to bring up on a first date. <laughs> Actually, you know, it's not a bad idea. <laughs> Tell us how that goes. Um, it might be because he thinks that it's like orthodoxy is in a sense beautiful. Like it's not just a painful yeah. thing that you just grit your teeth and you believe, but it's appealing. Yeah. Maybe that's one way of his, his arguments are kind of to that effect in this chapter. Yes. I mean, he, he talks about liberalism. Yeah. But like theological liberalism. Theological liberalism. He yeah. talks about that. And then he talks about Buddhism. Yeah. Interestingly enough. And mm -hmm. whether Buddhism and Christianity shake hands, you know, like whether they're compatible with one another. Yeah. And I think maybe he's trying to say that, I don't know, this could be off base, but Buddhism and liberal theology, liberal theology, liberal broad, mm -hmm. like open-minded, yeah, willing to take things to their final end, you know, like just it's, it's, there's a romance to liberalism, yeah, you know, free thinking, all this stuff. And it was actually, when you say liberal, what you mean is uh, everything's open except for miracles. Yeah. Yeah. Everything can be dogma except for orthodoxy. Right. You know, everything can be. Everything's permissible except for. <laughs> yeah. This actual thing. orthodoxy. So it's actually yeah. liberalism is not broad. It's actually narrow. It's, or it's, it's broad in one direction or something right. like that. Right. So he's saying it's not as romantic as you think it is. And then Buddhism, it's mystical and it's all is one. And he goes, what? And he makes this interesting point. We can uh, uh, talk about this a little more later. Where Buddhism is just everything is one. So therefore, love is really selfish. You're just loving yourself when you mm. love someone else. And anyway, he's trying to say that it's, it's sort of this like intellectual voyeurism. Like people are like, oh, Buddhism, liberal, modern day, all these things. It yeah. sounds so pious. He even uh, pokes fun at Unitarians mm -hmm. where he's like, they can only be mentioned if you also list like their accolades and whatever. It's like this high end, uh -huh. sophisticated, whatever. All your, all, you know, people like you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. But he's saying there's a romance that draws us to liberalism and to Buddhism and all these mystical things. He's like, but actually the true romantic uh, worldview, or I don't know if you want to use the word worldview, but the true romantic vision is actually captured by Christianity. Orthodoxy. Because the other stuff is actually pretty stifling. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think that's the romance of orthodoxy. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, let's start off with his take against um Progressives or liberals. I love this. Um, he says, uh, in actual modern Europe, a free thinker does not mean a man who thinks of himself for himself. It means a man who, having thought for himself, has come to one particular class of conclusions. <laughs> the material origin of phenomena, the impossibility of miracles, the improbability of personal immortality, and so on. And none of these ideas are, are particularly liberal. Uh, nay, indeed, almost all these ideas are definitely illiberal, as it is the purpose of this chapter to show. So the mm -hmm. modern free thinker in Europe, he thinks he's a free thinker, like I'm open to all things. But really, he's decided on materialism. Mm -hmm. Miracles are impossible and we don't live forever. There's no personal mortality. So yep. He's already established dogma. Right. You know, he's just free thinking. What He's not really free thinking. He's not really open to everything. He's saying, I'm closing these doors and yeah. opening these, Yeah. right? Christianity closes these doors and opens these. I'm just switching. I'm doing the same thing, mm. right? You're not, you're not the free liberated thinker you think you are. Mm. He says, uh, a holiday like liberalism only means the liberty of man. A miracle only means the liberty of God. You may conscientiously deny either of them, but you cannot call denial a triumph of the liberal idea. So, 
I mean, believe those things if you want, like close those doors of miracles, immortality, like you're, that's totally, if you want to be a free thinker, do that. Just don't encapsulate it under this idea of liberality. Like liberality mm -hmm. means broadening. Right. You're not, you're closing off the doors. Like anytime you believe something, you're closing off the door to the opposite of that thing. So just at least grasp what it is you're doing. He says, for some, inconce for some inconceivable cause, a broad or liberal clergyman always means a man who wishes at least to diminish the number of miracles. It never means a man who wishes to increase that number. So he's making the point <laughs> yeah. where he's like, if you're liberal, if you're broad, if you're liberal and you're broad and you're open to everything, hmm. why not say there could be more miracles? Yeah. You know? yeah. Like, why, why not say Christianity could definitely be true? You know, hmm. instead it's actually a very narrow-minded way. We, or narrow-minded. It's 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 no more narrow-minded than they're accusing Christians of being. Yeah. I mean, why? It, it's interesting. Why? Why is that sort of thinking lumped? Why do we call it liberal when people start denying miracles? I think it's because it's again, the opposite it's, of conservative. Like I mean, it, it's, it's not truly liberal. It's sort of like if you grow up and your family does things a particular way, and then you go to your friend's house and do it a different way, right? And you go like, I want to be open minded, right? I think it's because they go, Why well, we grew up in this Western tradition of Christianity, mm. like people. That's, those are the roots of their society. And so it's like, okay, England, their society, there's heavily Christian roots. And so for them to be open-minded is to go beyond the known territory. Yeah. I think that's what they mean by yeah. that. Um, well, and it, it fits with the, the recurring objection that he's raising throughout the book is that people, liberals keep defining themselves by what they're not. Mm -hmm. There is no like positive vision of what they're right. towards. Like they call themselves expansive. They call themselves free thinkers. But all that that means is I'm not that thing that I'm coming from. Right, right. I'm not traditional. I'm not conserving. But there's never a positive account being put forward. And Chesterton earlier on in the book, he talks about how uh, rediscovering his faith or, or becoming Christ, uh, Catholic, well, yeah. Christian. I mean, because yeah, Catholics other, aren't yeah. Christians. No, no. I mean, that, <laughs> I, 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 I paused because I forgot he became Anglican first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so before he became a Christian, or he was on this search and this quest and he's, he felt like coming back to the church was like coming back was like, he felt like he was discovering a new land and really it had just been home. Hmm. And I think that's one of those th things maybe that he's trying to get at where he's like, well, actually this broad thinking, maybe if you, if you really think broadly, if you really take into account all the data, you'd actually come home, hmm. you know? Um, and I don't think he's against free thinking. I mean, obviously he's a very free thinker himself, but right. he's against, the presumption that being anti-Christian is free thinking. Right, right. Or a, a very narrow view of what free thinking is that you <laughs> you sum right. up your free thinking by denying miracles, denying immortality, and whatever that third thing was. But yeah, it's escaping the narrow conception. And he, I guess he just wants people to, to bite the bullet. If you're going to deny these traditional views, then just call yourself that. But don't, don't say that you're sort of open to everything. Because you are, in fact, closing yourself off. And it's like the, that's just the nature of belief. Every time yeah. you believe something, you're disbelieving the opposite. It's like you're the coexist uh, stickers. Mm, gross. <laughs> you know, it's like the coexist. People who put up a coexist sticker are creating their own religion. Because yeah. none of those letters <laughs> agree with one another. You know, it, just it actually shows the ignorance of that. every one of those letters to, yeah. make, you know, to do that. equally offensive to everybody. <laughs> well, one of the things he's dealing with, and obviously this is still a sentiment that comes today, um, there is a phrase of facile, and what that is? Facile. Facile 
liberality uttered again and again at ethical societies and parliaments of religion. The religions of the earth differ in rites and forms, but they are the same in what they teach. So basically, you've all these all these different religions. They may have different cultural trappings. They may have different kinds of buildings, different yeah. rites, and all that stuff. But they all essentially teach the same thing. They look different, but they're the same. Right. Yeah. And he says it is false. It is the opposite of the fact. <laughs> the, the religions of the earth do not greatly differ in rites and forms. They do greatly differ in what they teach. I think that's an interesting observation. Yeah. Yeah. Most. Religions will have a temple, a meeting place between God and man. They'll have some kind of priest kind of thing. There's usually a sacrificial component. There's a desire for transcendence. I mean, there's all like the trappings of it are yeah. relatively similar. I wonder if that's actually why Israel fell into so much idolatry back in the Old Testament, because it looks the same. The forms like, and the rites were, were similar enough. I do think that's right. Yeah. But they're teaching completely different things. Yeah. yeah. And it's the flip. It's it's people are being too superficial. They think, oh, it's all same religion, just with different outward forms. It's actually, no, it's actually relatively similar outward forms, but different substance. Yeah. Right? Like how reductionistic and superficial and offensive is it to look at all the different world religions from the outside and go, well, they all have priests. They all have buildings. They all believe in transcendence. Therefore, they're all, they all believe the same sorts of things because from the outward trappings. And it's just like... It, it's basically the equivalent of stereotyping. <laughs> like, yeah. we think racism is bad for those sorts of reasons. Like, you can't just look from the outside and just assume that everyone is going to be the same based on these kernels of semblance that they share with one another. And so Chesterton is actually accusing the liberal mindset of being deeply offensive yeah. for lumping together all of these religions, like the coexist sticker, saying, well, you guys will all get along. It's like, we'll put you in this corner because you all believe in the transcendence, but actually, you couldn't be further apart. Right, right, right. Um, uh, he, he, he basically makes his point here. He says, uh, the truth is that the difficulty of all the creeds of the earth is not as alleged in this cheap maxim that they agree in meaning but different machinery. It's exactly the opposite. They agree in machinery. Almost every great religion on earth works with the same external methods, priests, scriptures, altars, sworn brotherhood, special feasts. They agree in the mode of teaching. What they differ about is the thing to be taught. And then he gives uh, specific examples. Pagan optimist, Eastern pessimists would both have temples, just as liberals and Tories would both have newspapers. Creeds that exist to destroy each other both have scriptures, just as armies that exist to destroy each other both have guns. So basically, yeah. if you look at liberals and conservatives, you're like, well, they've got Fox News, they've got MSNBC, they've got the New York Times, they've got Daily Wire, whatever. Not that I read any of this stuff, by the way. But if you just like, <laughs> if you're like a bystander looking outside and you're like, oh yeah, they all believe the same things because they have the same external trappings, you'd just be committing a terrible fallacy. That's just not mm -hmm. how we should reason. Super right. superficial. It is very superficial. Uh, he zeroes in on one particular um, view of different different forms, but one true religion. In uh, the great example of this alleged identity of all human religions is the alleged spiritual identity of Buddhism and Christianity. Mm. Um, he says, those who adopt this theory generally avoid the ethics of most other creeds, except indeed Confucianism, which they like because it is not a creed. <laughs> But they are cautious in their praises of Mahometanism, which uh, Islam, Islam yeah, yeah, yeah. Generally, confine themselves to imposing its morality upon only upon the refreshment of the lower classes. They seldom suggest the Mahometan view of marriage, for which there is a great deal to be said. And towards thugs and fetish worshippers, their attitude may be called may even be called cold. But in the case, but in the case of the great religion of Gautama, they feel a sincerely 
They feel sincerely a similarity. That was a hard paragraph to read. Yeah. But he's saying like, you know, they love Confucianism because there's no creed, there's no dogma. So yeah. it just fits with everything. Islam, a little more rigid. <laughs> maybe, maybe not too. Uh, just a little bit. Yeah, maybe more, maybe more incompatibilities there. And, uh, but Buddhism seems Buddhism close to Christianity. Seems close. And um, yeah, and he says, uh, he quotes a guy, Mr. Blatchford, I guess, maybe one of his contemporaries. Classic Mr. Blatchford. Classic Mr. Blatchford. People insisting Buddhism and Christianity are essentially the same thing. And uh, he basically says no. That they have maybe similar external trappings like washing feet. Yeah. You know, or, some, or wearing garments, something like that. I'd see the exact. Well, he says like the, in, in one story of the Buddha, like the gar his garments are torn. And people yeah. are like, oh, Jesus' yeah. garments are torn. Right. Right. But he says it's the exact opposite. Yeah. Like. In the Buddha story, people ripped the garments because they they loved and revered him. Right. But in the Jesus story, it's right. derision. So when you look past the superficial similarities, you see it's literally the exact opposite message being given. Right. It's like if you had really studied those two religions, you wouldn't have said that stupid thing. Yeah. Right. Because he, but he says it's rather like alluding to the obvious connection between the two ceremony, the two ceremonies of the sword. When it taps a man's shoulder and when it cuts off a man's head, it is not at all similar for the man. <laughs> I love that. We're saying, okay, so That's the awesome. common similarity is Buddha has robes and then Jesus had robes or garments uh -huh. and they were both ripped. Yeah. He's like, That's like saying, oh, the guy who uh, was, was knighted, knights you, <laughs> there was a sword. And then the guy who cuts off your head, also a sword. Yeah. Same thing. It's like, well, ask the guy if it's the same thing, right? His wit is just so cutting. It's great, right? But, uh, I like this little bit where he, he, again, another contrast between the, the Buddhist and the Christian is, the Buddhist is looking with a particular intentness inwards, and the Christian is staring with a frantic intentness outwards. Yeah, frantic intentness. Frantic intentness. Yeah. He, he talks about like when you look at um, icons of Buddhists yeah. and Christian saints, and you get like, he almost just says like, like plump, like happy, merry, like Buddhist monks, and then you get gaunt Christian saints. But the difference is that the Buddhist icon has the eyes closed, and the Christian icon, the saint, has the eyes open. And so this is the difference, like for the, for the Buddhist, it's all about inward meditation. Like the way that you achieve unity with the divine is like by staring on the inside. But for the Christian, it's, you can't look inside because we're all sinful beings. Right. And so we have to like, God is outside of us. Transcendence is something external to us. And then he gets to this point that we're not all one. We're not all the same thing, but also like the Christian ethic is largely outward focused, like people, community, even the differences in the monk practices. Buddhists went to the temples and ostracized themselves, but Christian communities had monkish um, monks were like integrated in Christian communities. And so like something about sociality was intrinsic to the Christian religion in a way that's not for the Buddhists, which is all about the self and meditation and inward thinking. Yeah, I mean, the, the quote, I'm just want to read it because you, you mentioned it, but it's a great yeah, yeah, go for it. The opposition, the opposition exists at every point, but perhaps the shorter statement of it is that the Buddhist saint always has his eyes shut while the Christian saint always has them very wide open. The Buddhist saint has a sleek and harmonious body, but his eyes are heavy and sealed with sleep. The medieval saint's body is wasted to its crazy bones, but his eyes are frightfully alive. Mm. Well, I mean, we pray with our eyes closed though. I'm like wondering, should we pray with our eyes open? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think he's sort of being a little tongue in cheek. Yeah, yeah. He's looking for these, his, his prose, you'd see it all over the place. He's always doing like these contrasts. Right. And they, they're super like extremes, like um, the, the person with the eyes closed, the person with the eyes open, the skeptic actually being the one who's 
um, repressed and the, the conservative is the one who's open and he's, yeah. he's always inverting things. Right. And that, that's just his pros. And it's just like, it really makes the points he's trying to make. I think it's really effective apologetics too. Yeah. When you reveal what people assume, hmm. you know, sometimes you can't even have a conversation because two people are assuming different things. Um, never assume, never assume. Well, one of the things again, you, and you mentioned why are the, uh, why is the Buddhist saint has his eyes shut while the Christian saint has them very wide open. And he says, um, he, he talks about this woman, uh, Mrs. Besant, um, who she says, according to Mrs. Besant, this universal church is simply the universal self. So it's kind of a Buddhist, I guess, idea. We're all one. It is the doctrine that we are really all one person and that there are no real walls of individuality between man and man. You've heard the joke where it's like, what did uh, the Dalai Lama or goes into a pizza shop? Yeah. <laughs> he says, make me one with everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, and then Chesterton comes in and goes, blasphemy. No, Chesterton eats the pizza. <laughs> he just comes in, he's like, blasphemy. It's like, you just ate the, you just ate my pizza. We're so irreverent. I know. I, I love know. that. I know. I wonder how that uh, chomping noise is going to sound in this podcast. It it's going to sound amazing. It's going to sound amazing, right? That'd be hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. Chesterton comes in, he's like, just grabs the pizza. <laughs> no explanation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, it goes on. It is the doctrine that we are uh, Mrs. Besant. According to Mrs. Besant, this universal church is simply the universal self. It is the doctrine that we are really all one person, that there are no real walls of individuality between man and man. If I may put it so, she does not tell us to love our neighbors. She tells us to be our neighbors. Uh, that is Mrs. Besant's thoughtful and suggestive description of the religion in which all men must find themselves in agreement. And I never heard of any suggestion in my life with which I more violently disagree. <laughs> I want to love my neighbor, not because he is I, but precisely because he is not I. I want to adore the world, not as one likes a looking glass, but because it is oneself, but as one loves a woman because she is entirely different. If souls are separate, love is possible. There's the romance of orthodoxy. Mm. And the idea that in Christianity, there's an other. I mean, if God is one with the world or, you know, then to extend love out to the world is just self-love, mm -hmm. but God is transcendent. So when he extends love to creation, it's an outward motion, mm -hmm. right? And that sets the course for how we understand love. Um, you love your enemy precisely because he is not you. Right. In fact, he's against you, right. right? You love your brother, you love your sister, you love your wife, you love your friends, all this stuff, because they are not you. Yeah, That's the selflessness. Yeah, And I'm like, wow, I never thought about the selfishness of if Everything is you. You're you're loving for self interest, hmm. right? You're, you're you're not actually loving the person because there is no person. There's just you. Yeah. Or, or, so, or you are just them, and everything's just one. So love is only possible if there's another. Is basically the argument. Yeah. If, if we're all one, then there's no. Yeah. I mean, that continuing that quote that you uh, were saying there, he says, "A man may be said loosely to love himself, but he can hardly fall in love with himself. Or if he does, it must be a monotonous courtship. Yes. <laughs> if the world is full of real selves." They can be really unselfish selves. So the, the possibility of love assumes that there are others. Right. And then he uses this to argue for the Trinity, basically. Mm -hmm. Like this is this is the era of Unitarianism. If, if you have this idea that we are all one, then it might lead to even Unitarian thinking about God. But if you think that love requires there to be an other, that's why God is an eternal loving Trinity of persons where the, the all the members of the Trinity are loving each other. So love is intrinsic to God because otherness is intrinsic to God. And then creation is other and all this sort of stuff. So he makes some really interesting philosophical moves in that 
sort of uh, discussion. Yeah. But upon Mrs. Besant's principle, the whole cosmos is one enormously selfish person. Mm. That's, <laughs> that's horrifying. Uh, it, was, it was great stuff, though. Um, but yeah, this idea of, of Christianity's outward focus, looking out into the world, is, uh, I think, a very powerful difference. You know, now I'm not saying that people who are Buddhists can't love other people, but I yeah. think that they're doing that in spite of the framework that that their philosophy sure. or, or way of life points toward. Yeah, well, I, I think Justin's saying that the way you think about relationships between us and others, and the way we think about what even we are and what we're called to do, like what activities we have, we infer from that, or that it shapes our idea of of God, and so and vice versa. So. He says, by insisting especially on the imminence of God, meaning like that God is one with us, we get introspection, self-isolation, quietism, social indifference. And then he says Tibet. He's talking about like mm -hmm. Buddhism. By insisting especially on the transcendence of God, we get wonder, curiosity, moral and political adventure, righteous indignation, Christendom. Insisting that God is inside man, man is always inside himself. But by insisting that God transcends man, man has transcended himself. Yeah. So look at how these ideas are connected. Like if you think we're all one and you think that God is just inside of us and this is just like one big glob of self, right? you get like, you get practices from that. Like you get meditation, you get quietism, introspection, but you don't get like social reform and moral and political adventure and curiosity and wonder in science. And so in a sense, I think Chesterton's saying the reason why science takes off in the West is partly because of this idea that like you think that there is an other like there's a right. nature there and there's a transcendence that has ordered that and so you go out and you wonder and you curiosity curiositize and philosophize and scientize um I, he's not saying exactly that but i think there's sort of like a spillover from from some of his assumptions um, something like that seems probably true and he's having this sense of being able to look out into the world and there's a sense of wonder in its otherness mm. or that it's a gift. It's a gift from the creator and the creator's other than you. Mm -hmm. And if the creator's other than you, then there are things about him that are going to transcend you that are going to blow your mind. I mean, he talks about the doctrine of the Trinity, right? And then Unitarians, a sect never to be mentioned without a special respect for their distinguished intellectual dignity and high intellectual honor. <laughs> All right. Um, are often reformers by the accident that throws so many small sects into such an attitude, but there's nothing in the least liberal or akin to reform in the substitution of pure monotheism for the Trinity. And mm. I think he's saying if, if you, you know, the revolutionary idea of the Trinity is actually like monotheism. I think what he's saying is mm. monotheism is actually the, um, the, the, the simple, it, it's a more simple answer than the complexity and transcendence of the Trinity. That the fact that the Trinity is so inscrutable mm -hmm. is a sign of God's, transcendence yeah um i think the complex god of the athanasian creed may be enigma for the intellect but he is far less likely to gather the mystery and cruelty of a sultan than the lonely god of omar or muhammad yeah i'm yeah. actually confused by that sentence i'm not 100 what he's trying to say i think i think he might just be saying that yeah that we could come up with the concept of unitarianism and because it's something that we can grasp or get our minds around but not only is it simple, and so therefore we should be suspicious of it, but also he thinks it um, it doesn't make sense of human social practices. Like it, I don't know. I, I think that he he does think like there's a correlation between the fact that humans are social. It should be that like 
from that God is social in a sort of mysterious way. Yeah. But there's a mistake between looking out into the world and seeing human sociality and then reading back into God, um, Unitarianism, non-Trinitarianism. Um, and he, he, he makes the argument even from the Genesis passage, it's not well for man to be alone. He says the social instinct asserted itself everywhere as when the Eastern idea of hermits was practically expelled by the Western idea of monks. So even asceticism became brotherly. Hmm. And so the Trappists were sociable even when they were silent. If this love of a living complexity to be our test is certain healthier to have the Trinitarian religion than the Unitarian. For to us Trinitarians, to us God himself is a society. It is indeed a fathomless mystery of, the, of theology. Ooh, you get a little dangerous when you say that. A little bit, yeah. Social I, I don't think he's going full social Trinitarianism, yeah, yeah. but he's saying that like it's a fathomless mystery. Like God, God is a unity and a plurality um, in himself. And so the real Unitarians who with scimitar in hand have laid waste the world, they have denied that, uh, basically they say it's not well for man to be alone, but it's good for God to be alone in a sort of sense. But there's a little bit of like rhetoric and it, depending on how you read it, you might be a, a little bit heretical. He's not a philosopher. He's not a philosopher, but there's something insightful. there, And I think the insight is just that love assumes the existence of another. And if love is to be part of God's nature, then God has to be social in some sense. By social, I just mean there has to be persons in the Trinity. And so we see that even in our reflected in our human societies. It's not well for man to be alone. It's not good for rational nature to be alone. And so that tells us something about God. Well said, well said. Yeah. Okay, let's go to the Calvinism thing. You oh, man. It annoys you, some of his talks about free will and Calvinism. What what particularly annoyed you? He just, I mean, he, he again. You want to read the quote? Is, is I can't find it right now, but I know see if I can something. Um, it. It, it's, it's another one of the, he lumps Calvinism in with something else again. Yeah. I don't know if I can find it, but. Regardless, okay, so what conceptually, though, what do you think he's missing when it comes to Calvinism? Well, he keeps saying, he, he says something like, I'll, I'll keep looking for it, but he says something like, the world is not a plan, it's a story. Yeah. And it's just a little bit like, right. it's a little bit loose and quick, like okay, as, thought, if, as if those are mutually exclusive. Yeah. You found it? To the Buddhist or to the Eastern fatalist, existence is a science or a plan which must end up a certain way. But to a Christian existence is but to a Christian existence is a story which may end up in any way. In a thrilling novel, that purely Christian product, the hero is not eaten by cannibals, but it is essential to the existence of the thrill that he might be eaten by cannibals. The hero must, so to speak, be an eatable hero. So Christian morals have always said to the man not that he would lose his soul, but that he must take care that he didn't. In Christian morals, in short, it is wicked to call a man damned, but it is strictly religious and philosophic to call him damnable. I mean, the, the first part of that, he himself is a storyteller. He's written books, like yeah. dozens of books. Right. So what kind of story doesn't have an ending? Like no, yeah. no, no, mean, one, no one reads a story and goes like, well, I hope this turns out exactly like, how he wants. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it doesn't change. Like if you reread a, reread a book, you don't get a different ending. So the, the, the plan story um, dichotomy is not really a dichotomy. So I don't, I don't understand. He wants to resist fatalism. And I think we, we, we should be on board with that. But he, he's not an open theist. He doesn't think that, for example, God doesn't know the future or it's up to us to totally determine the outcomes. Like he's a Christian. He has orthodox eschatology. He thinks God's going to write everything. So maybe he's saying something more nuanced and sophisticated, which I'm, I'm happy to. He's a lot smarter than I am. But it does seem like a little bit of a, I don't know, a little bit superficial like reasoning to pit those against each other. Like the Buddhist has this like, 
there's a sort of divine plan conception, but for the Christian, it's just an open-ended story. That's not, it's not quite true. We should, this would be another podcast, but I mean, does Catholic thinking automatically, I mean, I'm, I'm he's, I don't think so. I don't, yeah, I, I don't think there, so. I mean, like Aquinas, Aquinas talks about Augustine. I mean, God knows all things in the yeah. world by knowing his own mind. Like Tolkien knows the world of Middle Earth because he knows his mind perfectly. Like that's that's the what classical separates view of Aquinas God. from like a Calvin. In no, terms I mean of I, predestination. You think they're? Oh yeah, I, I do think that. I mean, some people read Aquinas like he's a libertarian free will. I don't think that. I think a lot of contemporary Catholic scholars read him as a compatibilist. Um, and you have to be if you want to say that God's knowledge of what we're going to do is not dependent on him learning from us what we're going to do. Because then you say that God like learns things and that's that, you know, defies aseity and omniscience and all this sort of stuff. So I don't know. I, I'm not sure what Chesterton is saying here, but he does seem to be really anti-Calvinism and anti-predestination. And maybe it's because by predestination, he thinks... He's talking to like the scientific reductionists of his mm -hmm. day who are just like, well, it's all just atoms in motion, like da, 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 da. Like we can't blame people or hold people morally responsible. Like I agree with him, that's silly, but Calvinism doesn't teach that. And the, the classical theistic tradition doesn't teach that. Well, what do you think about this last, uh, these last few lines in the chapter? Not only is the faith the mother of all worldly energies, but its foes are the fathers of all worldly confusion. The secularists have not wrecked divine things, but the secularists have wrecked secular things. If that is any comfort to them, the Titans did not scale heaven, but they laid waste the world. I think this is exactly drop. it's 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 what he's been doing the entire book and saying that the thing that skeptics think they're doing is not what they think they're doing. Like they think they're taking down Christianity and orthodoxy, but what they're doing is they're actually undermining the foundations of their own worldview. They're just being terribly inconsistent. The liberal theologian in thinking that he's expanding his horizon actually is shortening his horizon. The, the skeptic who thinks he's understood all of reality by reducing it to particles has shrunk reality. And it's actually the mystical person, the fairy tales, like all these sorts of inverted moves. When you try to undermine the Christian rich picture of the world, what you're doing is you're destroying even the foundations that allow you to be secular. Mm -hmm. I think that's what he's saying. Well, he says it well. He does. He says it well. The Romance of Orthodoxy. Really good, really good chapter. And we're nearing the end, quite the journey. But uh, yeah, you can really see, even though these are self-contained, I think, each chapter, they build on each other. Oh, yeah. And it's, definitely an it's a really different experience kind of reading it through. So, you know, in such a short period of time, mm -hmm. seeing how he builds his argument and how he's referencing other things. And by the time you get to these last chapters, you've already, you're already starting to see the world the way he sees it. Yeah. And, uh, that, that, I mean, yeah, you, even some of the phrases he uses with like, <clears throat> everything is a stick to beat Christianity with. You yeah. see that in like multiple chapters and right. you see the, the, the same argument of when you leave things on their own, they don't progress, they mm -hmm. degenerate and unravel. And yeah, you, you really get a sense. This book allows you to inhabit his mind and it's not, you're right. You can read them as individual essays, but when you read it all the way through, you get a very coherent picture of reality and you get a really good sense of what he's taking as his target. Like you get a sense of these were the people in London at the time who were making these arguments and you get just a much, much better sense of, okay, well, I know he's talking about Calvinism, but maybe he's not talking about this specifically and he has something else in mind or maybe I'm just being too charitable. I don't know, but it's, it's, it's been great. I'm kidding. No, no, he's got, he's a lot of good stuff. Make sure you guys pick up the book. 
Uh, we're going to have, I think, one more episode, one more chapter in this, but we hope you enjoyed this series. And uh, make sure you subscribe, share this with your friends, follow us on Instagram. That'll Preach Podcast is our handle. And buy the book, check it out, read along with us, check out our last few episodes. And uh, we'll be back here next week with another episode.